Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Happy bank holiday to you, um, if you're not at work, and unlike me, anyway, don't get me started on that subject. Uh, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, also at work on a bank holiday. What troopers we all are, that's what I say. Former Brexit Party MEP Michael Heaver, ethnographer and academic Dr Lisa McKenzie, and author James Bloodworth. I'll tell you what, guys, I'm going to start a one-woman campaign to have more bank holidays. That's what I'm going to do. I'll join you. We can have two of us. When I was self-employed, I really was not into bank holidays at all. Now, I am so into them. It's untrue. I am literally going to start a campaign. St George's Day, we'll have that one, won't we? Love it. The Queen's Jubilee, well, let's make that one a permanent uh, bank holiday every year. Any more before I go? Before I move on to what I'm supposed to actually be talking about tonight? My birthday. Throw one in for that. Yes, there you go. My birthday. birthday. My birthday. Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. birthday. <laughs> yes, well... Uh, we haven't got one in March. We don't have a bank holiday in March? No. All right, well, I shall. I'm going to start making notes. Uh, tell me what you think, by the way. More bank holidays or less? If you're self-employed, you'll be sitting there and going, what even is a bank holiday? What do they mean when you're self-employed, eh? Anyway, a um, little off-topic there. But you know the drill on Jubes and Co by now. It's not just about us here and our thoughts. It is not. It is about you at home as well. What is on your mind today? Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me as well, if that's your thing, at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Uh, we're everywhere, aren't we? We're all over social media and we're live on YouTube as well. So wherever you are tonight, good evening. You're very welcome. Now, our top story, the government has recently announced a plan to deport asylum uh, seekers to Rwanda for processing. But, got to be honest, doesn't seem to be having that much of an effect when it comes to a deterrent. Uh, nearly 300 people crossed yesterday, and so far today, at least 300 people have done the same. Uh, many were saying over the last kind of 10, 11 days that actually maybe this policy had been effective after all, but no, it seems it was just the weather that were putting people off. Well, joining me to discuss this is Alf Mehmet, the chairman of Migration Watch UK. Good evening to you. Uh, bring us up to speed uh, where we are numbers-wise all of this, if you will? Well, let's first of all be clear. The, the new laws, or the new law, the Nationality and Borders Bill, only came into force. In, indeed, royal assent was only a few days ago. So I think it's a bit unfair to say it hasn't worked yet, or the Rwanda deal hasn't worked. Uh, I believe I said last week on GB News that anyone who thought that the, the lull in the number crossing, uh, in those crossing, was uh, the solution that we've been looking for, was kidding themselves. That's not going to happen until, firstly, the government shows that it means business, that it will start uh, sending people back or sending people on to Rwanda, and also the other things that they say they're going to do, and, and that's hold on to those who are uh, crossing in boats, hold on to them until a decision is reached, and then act on it. And that's the problem at the moment. There's been such little action that I'm afraid the traffickers have been uh, encouraged to do what they are. 
So what do you think then that Boris Johnson should do next? I mean, you're saying, I think, let's just give this Rwanda plan a bit more time to see what happens. But anything else that, that well, should be happening right now that well, isn't? Rwanda plan on its own it's, is never going to be the, the solution. I think most certainly those who are crossing in boats have, in the first instance, got to be held. They've got to be detained in a place, secure, safe place, until their applications are dealt with. Excuse me a moment, sweet. You're on GB News. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Preparing my dinner. <laughs> oh, lovely. I'm going to come round after this then. Don't tempt me. Sorry, you were saying. You'll be very welcome. Um, but can, can I also say, um, let, let's please remember what this is all about. The numbers so far this year, we've already had over 7,000 crossing in boats. That's four times the number we had last year by... Uh, the end of April, in fact, well, we're only just into May. If it continues at this rate, we're really looking at over 100,000 people this year. That is why it's absolutely imperative that the government really does uh, mean business when it says it's going to uh, put a stop to this. Can I also say that um, I've seen some figures today which show the number of those entering the EU illegally. It's something like uh, this year is 60% up on 2019. That's 240,000 people who have been detected coming into the EU. The numbers there are huge. Unless we start talking seriously and the EU and France starts talking seriously, the problem is going to continue. They've got to accept people back and also those who cross illegally and have no permission to be here, the countries that they come from have got to be taking them back as well. And there is, in the legislation, scope for putting pressure on, if you like, on the countries who are at the moment either reluctant or slow in taking back their nationals who have absolutely no claim to asylum in this country. OK, Alf Mehmet, thanks for your insight there. Enjoy your tea. Sounds lovely. I'm very Thank jealous. Uh, James Bloodworth, your thoughts on all of this? Um, I was against the Rwanda policy. I, not because I don't think it will be a deterrent. I think it might be, I, but I think it was the wrong deterrent. I think it was a very inhumane policy. I think it's a waste of money flying. Hey, hang um, on a minute, because I, I remember you being on here the other day and you were saying to me that you weren't against it per se, you were against the destination being Rwanda. Yes, that's what I'm about to get to. So I think it was, it's, a, it's a huge waste of money and time and I don't think it's humane to fly migrants 4,000 miles away to uh, Rwanda. I think it'd be much better if we have to strike a deal with the French and start processing migrants before they cross the channel. That would mean we don't have to spend all these resources policing the channel um, to, to catch migrants. It would be more humane. I think we could, I think it's within the realm of possibility to strike a deal with the French to do that. Um, and I, I, Come on, I, I James, think, I like you, but I think you're being a bit no, deluded. I, I think we need to dial to down the rhetoric the in terms of... We need to dial down the rhetoric in terms of demanding that French, France does this. And I think we, we, we can strike a deal on that. I don't think it's, it's beyond the realms of possibility. I think the broader issue is... We're not going to deter people from wanting to come to the UK at the moment because there are, you know, there are vast kind of geopolitical issues around the world in terms of conflicts. We've, we left Afghanistan last year. Many, many migrants have left that country are seeking uh, new lives in Europe. I mean, 
the stuff in Ukraine that's going on now. There are bigger issues going on that, that a single policy is not going to solve. And I agree with what Keir Starmer said as well. We need to actually have a more effective policy, put more resources into tackling the crime gangs that, that are transporting these people over here in the first place, because I don't think that's being resourced properly at the moment anyway. Michael Heaver? Well, we've tried doing the deal with the French. The deal's basically considered of us uh, giving them tens of millions of pounds and them taking the absolute mick out of us and doing the square root of absolute bugger all month after month after month. So I think we've tried that and it's completely failed, actually. I'd be going on the offence and actually embarrassing Macron's government, the fact that the authorities have so badly failed to stop what is a very dangerous situation. As for the rewanda plan, I mean, of course, the government haven't actually put this into effect yet. So there's going to be a lot of scrutiny, obviously, around how widely the government implement this. Are they going to follow through on it? What are the legal challenges going to look like? How long are they going to last? And I think the end of this, actually, as Theresa May talked about when she was Home Secretary, actually, leaving the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, is ultimately what the government are going to have to do if they're going to get a handle on this. And I repeat the point that I made when I was on the view before, Michelle. This could cost the Conservatives the next election. The numbers that are being talked about, 28,000 last year, between 60 and 100,000 people this year. It's astonishing that it's been allowed to develop year after year after year. The numbers get higher and higher and higher. The government needs to stop this. They need to stop giving the French money. They need to embarrass Macron's government by taking the boats back and revoking French fishing licences. The French authorities have totally failed and they should take responsibility for this as well. Do you agree, Lisa? No. <laughs> Help no. me. Go on. No. Talk to anti-jubes. I've, I've said on this programme many, many times I do not like this Rwanda thing. I think somebody... So, or some people from Oxbridge universities have sat in an office somewhere and wrote something on the back of an envelope. What would what would get people, you know, what would get people to vote for us again? And so they've come up with this mad idea about Rwanda. It won't work, it can't work. And I think honestly and truthfully, if you look at all the things that they've tried to do, none of them have worked. So there is now an argument for looking at a, a better idea and a bigger idea, which is getting together all the interesting parties. You, you know, you, you come from business background. You know that at some point you have to get stakeholders together and you have to talk it through. And so one of the things that I think we have got to do is stop trying to deal with this alone. Um, we need to listen to many, many voices. Uh, I think, you know, there's the Migrant Watch people who's got one particular view on this, but then there's also the refugee councils. And I think by inviting them into Whitehall, all of them, perhaps with the Navy as well, who's on the front line of this, with the French, and then also thinking about where, how these people traffickers are moving across the globe. This isn't happening just in France. It starts, you know, the other side of the globe, and they are connected criminal gangs. So we can't do this alone. We can't just go, oh, we're going to send people to Rwanda. It's not going to work. What we've got to do now is seriously, and I agree with you on one point, Michael, that this is getting serious and it is getting dangerous, but it's getting serious and dangerous for the people who's trying to make their way here. But I think it's it's not getting serious. It is well, it, serious it, it, it has been. Just to give you some context, by the way, just to be crass, because you say about business and it is my background you're right so then I think about some uh, the financial aspects of this by the way so at the start of February this is a figure that most people will be familiar with now uh, it was revealed that we are spending just shy of five million pounds a day ladies and gentlemen you heard that right a day that's at the start of February uh, on putting people up into hotels and I mean 
you you just that is just not sustainable so it's no, not it's getting not. It's not i agree getting with you i completely <laughs> agree with you andrew mitchell has said that the rwanda policy is going to cost 10 times that because you're flying yeah. people out to rwanda that's that's going to be far more costly than putting them up in hotels in this country well the initial figure not that that's the right thing to do but the rwanda policy will cost more money but i i just think there is a gross uh, unfairness to this so there I, know, is. I know in hull and i can think of in a particular hotel and anyone that knows that area will know the hotel that i refer to uh, it has been taken over by the Home Office. It's packed full of people that have just decided that they're going to get on a boat and get picked up at the border in the middle of the channel and brought back to the UK and put up in these uh, hotels. And outside of this hotel, and this is a true story, outside of the hotel is a huge car pack. It backs onto the train station. And there is someone, at least one person, sleeping rough in I, that, I, in that I agree with just, you. Michael. Just make a point quickly. I mean, the, I think it's £120 million they're spending on this scheme. When you're talking about £5 million a day on hotels, it makes it look like a bargain. The Australians have got a track record in using offshore processing. It's been proven to be a massive deterrent. And the, the fact is, when you pay an upfront cost, that's to stop it, the situation. Well, so we don't pay £10 why million. Did, why pounds, did the Australians so we don't get rid of it? We £10 million pounds why did hotels the Aust- next year, which is what we'll be doing if the Labour Party sort of policy of just hand-wringing and hoping the French do us a favour, that's what it's going to look I'm not talking about the Labour Party as a policy, though. I'm talking about something bigger and more sensible, which is getting all the stakeholders together and starting to think about this in a bigger way. It is a big problem. As you know, you know, there's not just people coming across the, the channel, they're coming across the Mediterranean. You know, Greece gets thousands and thousands of refugees coming into onto their shores every year. But and the so Australians this is... did stop this. But the Australians got rid of no that policy. To, sorry, there's no point in trying to come because you'll not be allowed to stay in Australia. Why did and they guess get... what? The boat stopped coming, didn't Let they? Why did they get rid of that policy then? Well, the boat because they stopped the problem. People stopped coming. They stopped the boats. The Australian but, model they... is the model that's now being followed by the UK because it's got a proving track record. Migration to Australia hasn't stopped. They stopped, they stopped the policy because the offshore detention centres were found to be in viola- gross violation of the human Australians rights. The Australians stopped the boats coming. You're denying that. But, but, you, but you, what he's referring to is Operation Sovereign Borders. But they've, um, they've stopped in that Australia. now. It was, they scrapped it because of the human rights violations that were going on at the detention centres. But it was also incredibly uh, effective, it's if deterrent. not fully effective. Of course, if you take away people's human rights, of course it will deter them. But I, I would know, say that's not the way to do it. I've got to push back a little bit on this because when I hear these conversations and I host these debates, frequently. If I had a pound for every time someone told me this is breaching human rights, it's inhumane, it's this. I mean, you even said about... We are signed up to these international for a reason. But people are making a choice. So people are making a choice to come to this country. And I I think, I'm a bit harsh on on a lot of this, I think that they're making this choice because they know that when they get here, they'll be picked up. Well, they don't even need to get here, actually. They get intercepted, then they get brought here. So when they're brought here, they'll be put up in nice hotels. They'll be given their 40 quid, they'll have no kind of uh, no kind of uh, outgoings and things like that, and I think that is a, a huge pull factor. They, they so c- I think you need to address that. They can't uh, they, they, they can't claim asylum here in mainland Europe. That's why they come here. Many of these people speak English rather than French or German, for example, because English is a more global language. They can't apply for asylum in, in mainland Europe, so they have to make the channel cross them very often. I do, uh, so I, I say we should process more in mainland I mean, Europe. I, I, do, I do agree in terms of... Sorry, Lisa. Like we should accept them all. I do I agree we that we should have more effective routes so that if people mm-hmm. legitimately, and this is the key word that I would emphasise here, and legitimately want to claim asylum, there absolutely should be mechanisms to safely and all the rest of it do that. However, you mentioned business, by the way. In business, you would have what I would call a business as usual. Then you would have exceptional circumstances 
circumstances. If I was in charge now, and I can only assume that people are thinking about this, I would be sitting there and going, this is not business as usual, mm. having thousands, tens yes, of thousands I agree of people with you. crossing the channel. So what can we do as an exceptional but, circumstance to reflect that? So, for example, my, my point I'm trying to make very briefly is that I would uh, try and look at, can we establish a policy which is if anyone makes uh, the crossing this way, it's an automatical strike factor. If you cross, if you enter the country by crossing uh, over the channel, your uh, application for asylum will essentially be null and void. I would try and stop that as a mechanism. And I think these are all things that could happen. And if we had a sensible, um, level-headed discussion with all the with all the rhetoric dialed down a bit and with stakeholders involved i mean i'm i'm a great believer in research and all i know is these policies keep coming out you know day after day and they sound ridiculous because they are ridiculous people have not put any thought in how can you start making policy about people's lives about human rights abuses and you can just do it in a couple of days and go oh we're going to do this it's it, it sounds crazy to me but the other thing i want to say is over the last two days i've seen some of those uh, images of refugees being pulled onto the beach in those boats there were women and children now okay. they wouldn't they okay. wouldn't be going to the to rwanda anyway let me let me be clear the cynic in me I think you're absolutely right that there's yeah. women and children. The cynic in me would say, hang on a second, because these traffickers know. Yes, the I agree with you. They're going to go to Rwanda yeah. the single These, tra these traffickers, these traffickers are also criminals and they are organised crime. So of course they are going to use women and children. They will use anybody because their 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 only point is to make money. So they are going to use anybody and they are going to put anybody at risk. So therefore the Rwanda plan won't work because what they'll do is they'll start looking for more vulnerable people who we can't send to Rwanda and that means there will be women and children coming over and we will see more deaths of children. And I don't think anybody in the British public wants to see that. Of course not. Nobody, Nobody wants would to see that. But you no. send out the deterrent, you know, the message, there's no point making this dangerous journey because you're not going to have to stay. And to be fair, you know, I'm hearing a lot of criticism from, you know, the, the Labour side, other opposition parties. What I'm not actually hearing are any alternative solutions, not to have more discussions. We've had plenty of discussions over the last two years. How do you intend to stop this? And I think Priti Patel as Home Secretary is obviously under huge pressure, but her nationality and borders bill, you know, and this measure is something I think that could act as a deterrent. The problem I think you're going to have is with the legal challenges, is with the ECHR, but make no mistake about it, if the Boris Johnson's government don't get a handle on this and stop the boats coming, if we see 100,000 people this year, 150,000 people next year, not only will this dangerous situation get even worse, but millions and millions of uh, Conservative voters will not uh, go and vote Tory. It will cost Boris Johnson's party the next election. Well, I can tell you what, uh, that's the views of the panel. Um, you guys, you're lighting up my email box. It looks like a pinball machine. It's lit up that much. I'm going to have some of your uh, feedback on that topic. There's lots of it. Um, lots of you guys been in touch about that uh, last topic we've been discussing. I can tell you that. Uh, still, as I'm writing, we're still into this one. Fred says, all of you guys saying that the Rwanda plan will not work. Let's give it five years. Five years, Fred? That's remarkably generous of you. Um, and by the way, I wonder what you think the numbers will look like in five years, because just as a recap, uh, in 2020, it was about 8,000. 2021, it was 28,000. And 2022, we've already had 6,000 plus. 
So I'm not sure what it would look like in five years' time. Uh, Peter says, five million a day uh, spending on this is disgraceful. He says we should be spending that on our homeless veterans instead. Janet says uh, there's no point in trying to engage with the French. Um, we've been trying that and it hasn't worked. A lot of people agreeing on the sentiment that actually uh, there does need to be a proper route then. If you want to close this route down, then what does that other solution look like? Uh, I think that is a key question, isn't it? Steve says, I've just had my holiday cancelled in a hotel in Bournemouth because it's been taken over by the government. Lots of hotels uh, have been taken over. That's not the first and I suspect it won't be the last. Now, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, We've got the former Brexit Party MEP Michael Heaver, ethnographer and academic Dr Lisa McKenzie and the author James Bloodworth. I remember when you was last on, James, it did make me chuckle, oh, yes. so it did, um, because I accidentally announced that James Bloodworth had, re uh, had written a book called... Um, Scam was it? Scam story late for work. Something about people being scammed. It could yeah, have been. Yeah, it, it was like scam that. story late for work, and I, uh, you know, proudly announced that that was his book, and it wasn't his book at all. It was just a note to self uh, to have a whinge about the fact that I was late for work that day because I'd been scammed. So I thought it sounded like a great book. Honestly, I rolled I was, with it anyway. Yeah, you did roll with that. Although your face was an absolute picture, you can look at it uh, on YouTube <laughs> if you're interested in that. Anyway, let's talk about housing now, shall we? Do you earn? your own house. I've got to say here, it's always been kind of a big deal, hasn't it? You know, like an English man's home is his castle and all the rest of it. But for a lot of younger people, particularly, trying to get onto the housing ladder, no chance. Uh, Boris Johnson has got a new plan. And I say new with a smile on my face. This is all about the whole right to buy. Uh, basically, it means that millions of people who rent their homes from a housing association would have the uh, opportunity now to buy this property at a discount. Uh, many critics, though, are saying two things. Firstly, this isn't a new plan at all. And secondly, it's not going to tackle the overall problem of a housing shortage. Lisa McKenzie, this is your kind of forte, isn't it? I bet you're dying to tell me your thoughts. Go on. You know, when I heard this today, I just yeah. wanted to cry oh, again, no. oh, again. No. We are in a major housing crisis. We, are, we talk about cost of living crisis. We talk about all sorts of things. No government and no political party want to talk about housing. And the reason that I want to talk about housing is because that our housing market is the only thing that this country rests on, this inflated bubble that we've got. So, therefore, putting another load of people with the right to buy, it, either it reduces social housing stock even further. Um, social, and, uh, you know, one of the things about housing association is in order to get a housing association property, you have to be homeless now. You can't just go on a list. Do you remember when we were young, you, my mum said, put your name down on the council list, and that's what you did. You can't put your name on a council list anymore. You have to go homeless, and then the council will decide whether you can go on the list. So, therefore, the people who have got housing association properties are people who need them. They're not, you know, they're not people who's just, you know, managed to get one. Um, and one of the other things about the right to buy, it's not worked. Because what has happened is whenever the council sells a property, the receipts, the money for that house, doesn't go back to the council, it goes to central government. So the councils are not building council housing. On top of that... 70% of our council housing stock that has been sold since 1979 are now in the hands of private landlords. So what that means is you will live in a council house, but 
or at ex council house, but you are paying inflated rent to a private landlord. Hang on, though, because it's not working. But isn't that because the person who's bought their yes. uh, property has then yeah. basically tried to profiteer? Yes, so they have. That's exactly. So that's, so that's exactly that's, what's happened. That's the fault. That's not the government's fault. That's someone no, that's the that policy's fault. That, that is the that is the weakness of the policy because the policy allows that to happen. Therefore, what we need regarding housing, I mean, it, so in do you, know how I, do you know how I'd get rid of that? But again, I'm quite harsh. If you buy your property at a discount, I would. Mm. I know you can't sell it straight away. I know this. It's know five years. Caveats. It's only five years, though. But I would say that if you sell it after that point, you've got to repay some of the discount back to the government. Well, I, well, what I would say is we don't have a right to buy at all. That, because the only thing that's going to help our housing situation, and that means young people getting on the housing ladder, is if we have a million council houses, new council houses, because what that will do is take the pressure off the market, and it means that young people who perhaps want to buy a house will be able to live somewhere. It will take the, re the private rents down, and it means that people will be able to save up. At the moment, the housing market is being inflated, inflated, inflated. You've got a situation in London, in London councils now, that because there is no housing stock, social housing stock, when you get a family in need, they are moving them 200 miles across the country. So you've got people from London who's lived here all their lives who cannot... You know, they've got children, they cannot get a social housing because there's no social housing in London, so they are sending them to places well, like... Then, so then what would you have? And I'm keen to bring James on. Yeah. So, but what would that mean then? Because, you know, what you're saying is, well, you've got a desperate family that's got kids, there's no stock for them, so then they've got to go, I don't know, heaven forbid, up to Hull or something yeah. like that. Um, but then, so what's the alternative to that, James? We just have a load of houses sitting around in the hope that, or, or the expectation that maybe someone might need it at some point. Well, no, people do. People do need them. I mean, I, I remember reading quite recently that there are people wait, who've been waiting ten years for a, for a council house in, in some parts of the country. We need more houses. But the way to, to, to do that is not to, to sell off even more council houses. We need to build more council houses, and we need to also make it easier for private developers to build. So at the moment, um, there was something in, in the Times today about how the government's plan to build, I think it's uh, 300,000 more houses, it might be more than that, I can't remember the exact figure, um, has been, you know, it's gonna, it's, it, they're not going to meet that plan because um, of nimbyism in, in local authority areas, both from environmental groups and also from local residents authorities who do not want new housing developments built. They need to make it much easier for houses to be built in the first place and we need to also have a mass council house building programme. Because at the moment it's, I mean, the situation in London, the amount of money that, that people's income that goes on rent is, 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 is ridiculous. It's half of people's income. Yeah, because I worry, well, I don't worry, I just ponder, is this um, more of a kind of, because there is such a difference, Michael, between what you will get, I'll just pick a figure, I'll pick like half a million, £500,000. In London, in some, well, I would actually say most places, you're going to just about get a one-bedroom flat for half a million mm. pounds. If I went home and I took half a million pounds, I could buy a beautiful home. So I wonder how much of this is UK-wide and how much of it is specific to London, uh, maybe, maybe some of the South, and then the rest of the UK. Well, I think this is... Yeah, I mean, look, it's obviously concentrated in certain big cities, but I think this is going on countrywide. Now, we talk a lot about the supply side of this, and, of course, that is very important. I think, you know, when you talk about the supply of new houses, something that I think a lot of people get worried about is, well, are you going to build the infrastructure with it? 
Are you going to, mm -hmm. for instance, build more, you know, doctor surgeries? Are you going to have more roads? Are you going to have more school places? Because just endlessly building houses without the infrastructure to support it, of course, actually lessens people's quality of life. The other side of this, the demand side, that no one ever talks about, since 1995 to 2020, population in this country has gone up by 9.1 9 million. The ONS forecast for net migration between 2020 and 2030 is 2.2 million uh, net migration in that decade. You could talk about 300,000 houses a year from the government, but whether you've got net migration at 50,000 a year or running at 300,000 a year may, will make a huge difference on how effective that 300,000 is. I think Boris Johnson should look at what David Cameron pledged and, of course, couldn't deliver inside the EU, and David Cameron pledged uh, net migration of ten, uh, tens of thousands, couldn't deliver it because we had open borders, Boris Johnson could this is deliver about it. housing. That, well, it's about supply and can demand. We, can we if talk about housing? Demand, We've got one opportunity here to talk about housing. And you, you're going on to migration. you've had a population surge. Well, I want to talk about housing. I want to talk well, about the way that the housing bubble is in this country. The way that people think that all their wealth is tied up with it, their house. People think that their pension is their house. But, but to be fair to Michael, there is absolutely two sides of the argument. Supply and demand. Yeah. You're saying that we need more property. But we don't need more property. off a cliff in, in recent decades. It's yeah. not just this government, it's previous governments as well, but it's fallen off a cliff. But I want to pick up on what you've just said, because you're saying about, like, the attitude and the wealth and the everything. I actually was looking at the home ownership, um, because actually, here, we do, I mentioned at the start, the Englishman's home is this castle, it's all about owning your own home. And here, I think, in the UK, we've got uh, home ownership rates of about 65%. So I was looking uh, at other places in Germany, their levels are about 51%. In France, it's 64%. Uh, Spain, it goes up to 76%. So I think there's almost like a cultural kind mm. of uh, shift and change, isn't there, about what there owning is. a property means? But there's also capped rents in Germany as well, which right. means that landlords can't... I mean, at the mo I spoke to a, a young woman last week in Nottingham. She lives in an ex-council flat a council house. She's paying out rent to a private landlord. Private landlord, and these are, this has replicated all over the country. Private landlord phones are up. We've, we're all in a cost of living crisis. I've got to put your rent up by £200 a month. And that but is... Can't, but you can't do that mid-contract, though. If you've got, a, if you've got like, a, a fixed-term uh, contract, you can't suddenly but if just you've... go and say, today, I'm going to... Yeah, but if you're on a rolling contract, which most people are, yeah. as a, like, when, when it's private rent, so usually on a every rolling... Every six months, for yeah. example, ours is. You're on it every six really? months, yeah. yeah. You've so got a fresh contract every six months, yeah. But the thing is, is, is the local councils have got no jurisdiction over that because they are private property. Mm. Um, and this is what's happening all over the country. And we really have got to talk about this. I know I'm, I know I'm getting upset and passionate about it, but I know that we all know if you have no safe place to live, you have nothing. You have no mental health, you have no good mental health, you have no good physical health, your children will not do well at school, you will not thrive. Mm. And why we can't just talk about housing in this country, I don't know. Well, we can on Jubes and Kerr, because that is indeed what we've just been talking about. Anyway, uh, that is your, that's the panel's thoughts. Lots of you were emailing in uh, with your thoughts.
Let me know, though, what do you think about that? What do you think as well to my point that I was asking about, about, you know, the, the, the home is the castle? You know, is it your objective to own a home? Do you own one already? Are you happy to rent? What's your thoughts on all of that? GBviews at GBnews.uk. Tweet me as well at Michelle Jubes or at GBnews. Lots of lively emails uh, are coming in. Still about that first topic, uh, the migration uh, crossings over the channel. I've got a suspect, I've got a suspicion I bet Nigel Farage will be talking about that in his show at seven. Nigel, am I right? Am I wrong? Oh, you're right. Yes, I was up at three o'clock this morning and out in my channel by five. You see, I knew the argument last week. Ah, it's working. Rwanda's working. The boats aren't coming. No, that was because of the weather. Um, big day again today. Well over 300 people taken into Dover. We have some amazing footage that we took this morning. Uh, there is one thing we're going to show that's never been seen before on British television, which calls into doubt just how genuine many of those that come are and whether we really can think of them as refugees. We'll do that. Uh, we'll talk about right to buy. We've heard it all before. Is it really going to happen? And joining me on Talking Pints, best-selling author and a tabloid journalist with a broadsheet mind, I'll be joined by Tony Parsons. Nigel, thanks for that. See you at 7 o'clock. Um, see, we talk about housing. He's covering it as well on his yeah, show. It's all going on on GB News, isn't it? Uh, right, I'll tell you where else it's all going on. Parliament. Have you seen some of the goings-on? It's all getting a little bit low rent now, isn't it? I think it's a little bit embarrassing, uh, some of the goings-on, if you ask me. Uh, a by-election is going to be called in Tiverton and Honiton. This is, of course, following the MP uh, Neil Parrish's decision to resign at the weekend after he was watching pornography in the House of Commons. I mean, uh, don't get me started, by the way, on how bizarre I actually think that was. He was looking for tractors. Uh, and by the way, I actually do think I believe him because now that I know the name, uh, the brand of the tractor, I think it's plausible. But of course, he went back a second time. Who does that? In the House of Commons, all very strange. Anyway, uh, this is all part of a bigger cloud, isn't it? There's been all kind of allegations about sexism and misogyny and all the rest of it. So how do we fix it? Well, one suggestion uh, that's been put into place is female, uh, all-female shortlist, apparently, for the uh, by-election that's coming our way. Is that a good idea? Absolutely Michael? not. No, it's pretty insulting, isn't it, basically? So, I mean, I know the Labour Party do it a lot. Basically excluding men and saying that's the only way that a woman um, could get selected. And I certainly think what we're seeing in Westminster at the moment, aspects of it feel like a bit of a fever dream. I think some people have lost the plot, lost all sense of perspective. The name I've actually seen linked uh, to this by-election for the Conservatives would be Lord Frost. Frosty the no-man, perhaps. Mm. Uh, a dramatic entry into the House of Commons and talked about as a potential future Prime Minister. So I think that could be one to watch, Michelle. Yeah, Lisa, I've got to say, I do find all-female um, quotas and all this, I found it ludicrous, but there is a small part of me that almost wants it to happen in this scenario, because I think it'll be hilarious even trying to watch people decide what constitutes as a female oh, to even be allowed <laughs> to go on this list. Don't, It'll be hilarious just for that alone. Listen, you, you know... You're not going to get any arguments from me over this. I'm I'm not really a fan of these all-female shortlists, actually. I'm not. Um, and especially when you're going to keep the same parliament, you're going to see, keep the same archaic, dogmatic, old-fashioned system, but, you know, you're just going to put more women in there, but the system's going to be exactly the same. It's a bit, you know... I'd, 
I think as I think when the Labour Party do it, it's about symbolism and about sort of uh, you know looking like you're doing the right thing. But actually, it it does it does very little. It doesn't really do anything. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what it would do for me, James. It would demoralise me because if I got a job purely because all the men were excluded, I wouldn't be able to hold my head up high in that role because I would think myself, I'm not actually sure that I'm here on merit, number one. And then I would think, number two, everyone must be looking at me in this organisation knowing actually she's there because most of the people were excluded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of infantilises women um, and it's quite patronising. And I think it's it's very, very tokenistic. It's, it's the idea that that you've suddenly brought about mm. equality because you have, you know, in a boardroom or something, or in a company because you have 50% male and female split in the boardroom, even though the company, you know, they pay the CEO 100 times more than the workers. Um, I also think that this idea of all women shortlist is a very, very simplistic idea of equality as well. So, I mean, let's say you have someone, a man who wants to stand in the seat who was born in a council estate, is therefore he should not be allowed to stand and mm. you should have a middle-class woman who stands in his place. There are more middle-class women in Parliament than there are working-class men, so I think it's yeah. it's more complex than just saying, is this person male, female, therefore we should have an all-woman shortlist. I think it's a bad idea. And I also think many women are capable enough of getting into politics off their own backs. They don't need um, this kind of stitch-up. Um, by the way, I, I do. I saw a video today. I'm going to play it to you if I can find it. Uh, well, not me. If my guys can play it. Listen to this. That's it. So I play that because this is kind of where our politics is right now, isn't it? A lot of people chanting to uh, Parliament, we can see you watching porn. And I, I just find it all, Michael, so low rent. And I think as a, you know, as a country, we deserve a better standard of representation, a better standard of conversation, a better standard of behaviour from all people, all different colours. I'm not going to start kind of getting into it's all this pie or it's all that pie. And uh, the current Speaker of the House, he's been suggesting a variety of different measures about how you could kind of shake Parliament up. For example, one of the ideas is about closing the bars, the subsidised bars, I must point out, on the Parliament estate. Would that make a difference? I don't know. Look, I think there's a tendency here to overreact slightly. I think when you talk to your average man and woman on the street, are they really that bothered by the fact that this this guy's, uh, you know, had to resign and all the rest of it? It's for, OK, unprofessional conduct or whatever. Mm. But it's hardly the crime of the century. There's a lot bigger issues going on. We're talking about people coming across on, on, on boats from France. We're talking about, obviously, the, you know... What's going on in Ukraine? But it's about standards, Michael. Yep. So it's about... I wouldn't expect to be able to sit out there in the newsroom and just randomly start watching porn. I wouldn't no, but he's resigned now. The story's I, not... I know, but I wouldn't accept you sitting here watching porn now. <laughs> Well, no um, one obviously wouldn't do that, but I'm just saying, you know, the guy's <laughs> resigned, you know, his political career's basically over, he's copped it, let's move on. Well, isn't that, isn't that the wider cultural point yeah. about Westminster, is that someone thought that they could do that, that the, the, the professional standards, the, you know, the workplace, the way that the parties, um, you know, th they get whipped, they don't even get to check, make their own minds up. Yeah. I remember being in a car once with a minute who's now a minister, I'm not going to say it is, but I was talking to him about FE colleges and access courses, and he said, these are really good ideas. I said, well, yeah, but your party's now got rid of all adult education. And he went, 
Do you know what? I do remember voting for that. I really need to take more notice what I vote for. And I think when you've got a system that allows that sort of thing to happen, you're right, this is about standards and culture. It does um, feel like the job's being taken seriously. You have yes. a, we have a situation, a cost of living crisis, where people are sinking into poverty, they can't pay their gas and electricity bills, and yet you have their representatives uh, in, in Parliament messing around watching pornography. It's a disgrace, really. Or, equal, or equally, on the other side, arguing about whose knickers you can see. <laughs> Do you know, I heard you, I heard you say something totally different then. My mind is not in the right place because the <laughs> sentence, the sentence that I heard you say uh, and what you actually said were two very different things. But do you know, one of the things that I um, have a suspicion that's going wrong is that we're taking these uh, civil servants, these members of parliaments, uh, and we're turning them often into celebrities. Like, I think it is so wrong that a member of parliament would go on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here or celebrity come down with me or whatever other programs many of which exist because to me you're not a celebrity you're a public servant that's been voted into public office to do a job and if once you leave that job and you want to trade on your name and your reputation and all the rest of it whatever but whilst you're a serving member of parliament i think it's absolutely appalling that you can do things like go on reality tv shows and i think james that that is one of the contributing factors because then you create this collection of people who think that they're semi rock stars and that therefore they can get away with whatever they want to do I mean, I think social media plays a role in that as well. I think far too many MPs spend too much time posturing on, on Twitter, for example, and, and trying to get retweets and go viral instead mm. of actually dealing with their constituents' concerns. And that's, I think, again, is a form of seeking celebrity. I don't think it's, it's a form of representation. I think it's essentially wasting all of our time. Yeah, lots of um, communications coming through on the emails and also the social media, the Twitter. Uh, tonight, you're still talking about our first topic, by the way. You're still talking about uh, immigration. And I think a couple of you have asked as well, um, and I'm scrolling through for your name, but you'll know who you are. You know, you're pointing out to me as well the impact on your local communities because often uh, many people that are kind of coming into the country, crossing the channel, whatever, they're not um, staying in London. Often they are being sent over to areas that are already uh, struggling and quite deprived areas. And I think mm. the sense that I'm getting through, if you live in one of those areas, is that this is creating a lot of div uh, division, a lot yeah. more strain. Michael, your point in terms of the mm. infrastructure and the effects on the infrastructure there. Um, so David, he says, we bought our council house 30 years ago. We haven't deprived anyone of anything. We still live here. Uh, the main thing, he says, that's caused lack of housing is that there's so many single-parent families require two houses. Do they? How does that work? <laughs> well, I don't get what you mean there, David. Does it mean the mum lives in one with a child, the dad lives in the other? Is that what you mean? I don't know. You can respond to me and let me know what, you're, what you mean on that one. Lee says, Michelle, I think the Rwanda scheme is a complete and also shambles and it should be shut down. He goes on to say it's completely inhumane and unfair on those who really need our help. Um, I would ask early, by the way, how do you know who a lot of these people are? Because, to the best of my knowledge, I thought they kind of got rid of their identification, etc., on the way in. So often, we have no clue who a lot of these people are. Um, Julie says, we need to get tougher, like what the US used to be. She says, years ago, I ever stayed my visa in the US. They put me in a county jail. Oh, 
Okay, I'm not sure. Anyway, let's let's not open that one. Uh, Rob says, speaking about bank holidays, yes, that was my little rant I went on at the start of the show. He says, what about the 21st of October? We could make the Battle of Trafalgar Day uh, a bank holiday. He says, it's a long break from August to December. Paul says, if we're going to give people discounts on housing, how about those people who struggle to save a deposit for their house? Can they have a discount too? See, where do you draw the line when it comes to discounts? Anyway, Lisa, uh, James and Michael, thank you very much for your company. Guys, thank you as well for your company on this Bank Holiday Monday. Very much enjoy our conversation. Lots of you still emailing in. I promise you, I don't always read every single email out, but I always read them. I always make time to hear what you have to say. Have yourself a fantastic evening, and I will see you at 6 o'clock tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.